is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Light Ali and Jordan Allen, gathered in the spirit and memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. Thanks to Tom Morello for Let Freedom Ring, our chosen anthem, and for his steady quest for justice, for peace, and for freedom. Tom has a dazzling new book out called Whatever It Takes, and Bill gave it to me just last week. It's a photo book that tracks his lifelong mission as an artist and activist. Pick it up, TomMorelloBook.com. One word, TomMorelloBook.com. Have you had a chance to look much at it, or are you just uh, kind of still doing mostly homework and looking at it occasionally? <laughs> um, I did flip through it. It's pretty amazing, but, you know, those f fractions aren't going to do themselves. <laughs> exactly. They're not going to do themselves, exactly. Um, we're broadcasting from the unceded lands of indigenous peoples, including the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa. And we're transmitting, as always, on the Freedom Frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily at the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be, or should be, but is not yet. We tune into first and fundamental questions. What is freedom? How do we get free? What are the freedom dreams that encourage us and drive us forward? Good questions for kids to think about, good questions for all of us. Our first regular feature is a moment of zen, the quiet contemplation of a poem, and today's poem is a few lines from Walt Whitman's classic, Leaves of Grass. You felons on trial in courts, you convicts in prison cells, you sentenced assassins, chained and handcuffed with iron, who am I that I too am not on trial or in prison? Me, ruthless and devilish as any, that my wrists are not chained with iron, or my ankles with iron. You prostitutes obscene in your rooms, who am I that I should call you more obscene than myself? Oh, admirers, praise not me, compliment not me, you make me wince. I see what you do not, I know what you do not. Inside these breastbones I lie smutched and choked, beneath this face that appears so impassive, hell's tides continually run. Lusts and wickedness are acceptable to me, I walk with delinquents with passionate love. I feel I am of them. I belong to those convicts and prostitutes myself. And henceforth, I will not deny them. For how can I deny myself? Our second regular feature is a free write where you can pause the podcast and reflect for a moment on the page. Today's prompt is, what does freedom mean to you? Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt, or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews, and follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. I recently had a long and far-ranging talk with Xavier McElrath Bay as part of our guest speaker segment, Authors, Artists, Activists, and Academics after hours. Xavier is co-executive director of the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth and co-founder of the Incarcerated Children's Advocacy Network. Xavier has fought to abolish life without parole for children in America and has played a major role in ending this practice in several states, 
including Nevada, Utah, Arkansas, South Dakota, and North Dakota. Here's part of our conversation. So um, at age 13, I go before a judge and, you know, I was charged with first degree murder. And at the time I had already racked up 19 arrests and seven convictions. And the judge looked at me and said I was incorrigible. He said I would never change. Uh, he said I wasn't fit for the juvenile justice system. Uh, and he transferred me, transferred me over to the adult criminal court. But at that time, what was largely unspoken, what, what I had never had a chance to really share, or what really didn't have the mindset to share, was the fact that I was a kid that never really had a first chance, in the, you know, really in the first place. You know, yeah. I, I was a kid who grew up in the back of the yards, who lived in a community that was, you know, riddled, riddled with violence and um, drug abuse and drug sales every, at every corner. I was in a community where resources and opportunities were, were very limited. Um, and, you know, that coupled with a home life that was challenging because my mother was contending with schizophrenia, untreated, undiagnosed, by the way, along with my brother contending with the same, and having a stepfather who was very abusive, um, it was natural for me to run to the streets. And, you know, many of my arrests early on, uh, for example, the first one happened when I was nine years old, and that was for stealing a candy bar from a grocery store. And that was really just indicative of the fact that I was a kid who couldn't resist a candy bar. I was a kid who didn't have money to buy a candy bar. And that was met with a swift consequence of being placed in handcuffs, of being taken to the police station, and being signed up by my mother. Soon after, I got arrested for uh, criminal trespassing to property, and that was for trying to sleep in an abandoned building to hide away from my stepfather. And then soon after that, I got arrested twice more for um, stealing uh, quarters out of parking meters. Because I had learned from one of the older guys in the neighborhood that you, if, the, if the two pins were vertical, if you put a screwdriver in a hole and pull it towards you, you can get a great can of quarters. <laughs> and so I did that. And those are my early arrests. And, but you know, sadly, those, those sort of morphed into more serious offenses as time went along. And my first time in detention, uh, which was totally unexpected, and actually at a time when I felt I was actually a victim, was when I was a gunshot victim who refused to tell my best friend who shot me by accident. How did that happen? Um, we, we were, I was 11 years old. My, my best friend was 13. My other friend was 14. Another friend that was there, I forgot his age, but he was roughly around the same age as we, as, as we were. And we decided to go and, you know, to grab a gun from underneath the porch of a friend's house. We had just joined the gang. Uh, they told us if you ever had any problems, you know where the guns are. And that just sparked curiosity for us. You know, being kids, being risk-taking and petrous as we were, we went back there and we pulled the bag out from underneath the porch, pulled a, pulled a 22 Smith & Wesson Long out of the bag and was playing with it. Walked a short distance and within without a, a moment's notice, uh, without warning, suddenly the gun went off and it shot me beneath my left eye. Wow. And when that happened, um, you know, of course, you know, uh, my friend panicked. I, I was conscious throughout the whole time. And I was walked to my other friend's house where they called the ambulance. I thought I was going to die. I found myself trying to swallow my own blood because I thought as an 11-year-old child that if I swallowed my blood, it would stop me from bleeding to death. I mean, this is how young-minded I was, you right, know? Right. I had no idea about my anatomy, uh, what it was like to uh, to be able to survive in that moment. Um, and so being placed into the ambulance, you know, all this hysteria going on around me, my friends yelling from the outside, you're going to be okay. The neighbors and others being outraged at, at the fact that an 11-year-old kid being shot uh, and being placed in the ambulance and seeing that horrendous sight, um, amid all the hysteria, the officers jumped into the back of the ambulance and asked me, who shot you? Uh. And, you know, I didn't know there would be a legal consequence to, to lying, 
But my natural instinct was not to tell on my best friend because I knew it was an accident. Right. And so I just simply said, it was a man in a black car. Right. And um, they rushed me to the, to the hospital. I went to the ER. Um, while that was happening, my friends were being questioned back at the police station in separate rooms. And so what happened is that one of my friends, who didn't think that anything was, was wrong, told the truth. He said, my friend shot my other friend by accident. <clears throat> and, and, and basically, you know, he, he assumed that no one would get in trouble. Well, that wasn't the case. Uh, my, my, my best friend ended up getting arrested and charged with, with my attempted murder. Um, weeks later, actually just days later, while still contending with locked jaw, while still dealing with the severely bruised face with the bloodshot left eye and loss of hearing and all these physical ailments and in recovery, the police pull up and they jump out and they tell me to hop in a car. I hop in a car and they tell me I'm being charged with obstruction of justice. Wow. So they, 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 they took me to the police station. And unlike previous arrests, my mother would come and sign me out. They said, you're going to go to the juvenile temporary detention center. I was going to go into detention. Here it is. I'm 11 years old, a gunshot victim, still physically vulnerable. And, and the, the greatest challenge for me in dealing with that was that I did not know what obstruction of justice meant. Right. I'm 11 years old. Right? You know? <clears throat> so, right. you know, I was placed in the juvenile detention center um, and, um, and within 48 hours, in sol- I was in solitary confinement for fighting a kid who tried to take my chair because he saw that I was physically vulnerable. And I just jumped up and swung on him and he beat me up and we ended up in the hole together. Uh, separate cells, but next to each other to the far end of the section near the, ba- near the bathroom. And interestingly, we became friends back there, uh, but as we were desperate for human contact, communication, um, but it was really just indicative of the fact that here it is, we had kids mm. inside the system who come from all forms of trauma, and w- which we know more now than ever as, mm. as it relates to adverse child experiences. We know that 90% of the kids in a juvenile justice system have experienced at least two ACEs. And that was much of the same back then for me as a child having been through poverty, having been a gunshot victim, obviously, having had the abuse of my stepfather, been in and out of foster care, having abusive foster mother, um, you know, you name it. Like the, having all that, those toxic things happen to me up until the point of being placed in detention for my own, for my own shooting in my mind as an 11-year-old. Yeah. I'm locked up for my own shooting. I just really didn't have any trust for the system, right. you know. And, you know, I that's, that's when my offenses became more serious. I yeah. became more... Immersed in gang life, was deeply connected to my gang. And next you know, armed robberies, aggravated assaults, weapon charges, murder. And, and so you got arrested uh, at 13. You're before the judge at the age of 13. Yes. You got a long rap sheet. Yeah. And the judge throws a book at you. What does the judge do? Yeah. I mean, he basically said I was incorrigible. He said mm-hmm. I would never change. He's, he said I wasn't fit for the juvenile justice system. And I found myself standing before an adult criminal court judge. At the age of 14? 13, 13 years old. 13. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and um, I was fortunate uh, in one respect, and that is that I had a public defender who believed in me, who saw me for where I was. Um, Hershella Conyers uh, was just like three years into her role as a public defender. Um, just she's saw me. Pretty, and, she's a pretty famous public defender. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, back then she wasn't so famous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was just, you know, she was someone who, you know, who was given these cases, these very unique, interesting cases where kids were being tried with murder. And... I think what was the practice back then was much like you see for the adults. You know, you you give them the continuance after continuance, and you wear them down, and you 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 talk them into a plea deal, and you have to spend you know endless amounts of, of funds on a, a process that it can be if, if expedited, 
can uh can avoid that and so for me being a child and her seeing me for the first time and recognizing that i was i wasn't very much different in age and temperament perhaps as her son yeah and uh, what she expressed years later is that she just couldn't see me going to prison for the rest of my life she she decided to fight for me and though i was guilty and though i was ready to plead guilty and was deeply remorseful in fact instantly remorseful of what i had done uh, and my involvement in pedro's loss um, she she just encouraged me to be patient with the process that she was going to advocate for me. Um, she called the state's attorney and the judge into a conference and was there for hours in tears and very passionately advocating for me. And this was not even during a hearing. This was just a, a side conversation while I waited in the bullpen. And she came back to my to the bullpen while others had been sent back to the uh, to the the county sections in the juvenile detention center. I was there for hours pacing this this extremely bright uh, 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 bullpen, this room's holding holding cell, where the light was buzzing above me. And I couldn't hear, I couldn't make the words, of, but I did hear her, I did hear the judge, and I heard them talking, but I couldn't quite make their words. So imagine how desperate I was to know my outcome. I knew I was not gonna go to trial. I knew that for a fact. And so when she came back to the bullpen, she was in tears and she was crying. And I just knew for a fact, you know, my public, my, my co-defendant who was 14 years old had received 40 years in prison and I was much more culpable. He had only one arrest and one conviction. I had 19 arrests, seven convictions. I knew for a fact I was going to get at least 40 years. And she, she came to the bullpen in tears crying and saying, I'm sorry. I'm like, well, I asked her, why are you saying you're sorry? And she said, you know, cause I was only able to talk them down to 25 years. Wow. Now I understand back then <clears throat> under the old law, there was a day for day, day for day provision. For every good day you served, it took one day off. And what that meant for me as, as you know, as a 13-year-old kid going in and 15 at the time of, of this conversation, I can get out and in, in within 12 and a half years. In my mind, I had already accepted the fact that I had 20 to go at least because my, you know, what I had learned and observed from my co-defendant's uh, outcome. And I was like, hold on, 25, 40, like, what are you crying for? <laughs> you know, um, but you know, she has such a beautiful bleeding heart for me. And but but you, you had a sense it. back then that she really cared for you. Oh, absolutely. As a person. Yeah. And that must yeah. have made a huge difference facing oh, yeah. what you were facing. Yeah. But then years later, you and Herschel yeah. became friends. That's right. That's colleagues, right. right? Yes. I mean, yes. that must be very yeah. moving for her as well and for you. I mean, I, I can imagine, you know, for her to see, especially the fact that, you know, she she fought to create a light at the, end of, at the end of the tunnel. A lot of people in my space who were given life without parole, 60, 70 years, depending you know how they stack those sentences. Like I I I grew up with them inside the prison system, and I saw how they responded to things, you know, especially later on as we got older, a little bit differently, you know. And though they were resilient, though they had hope, and though they fought and litigated their cases, especially when they got older. I feel like they were experiencing their time in there much different from how I was, mm. because you know, being having a twenty-five year sentence meant that I would get out of my mid twenties. Right. It meant the administration of these institutions would be able to see me and say, "Okay, well, let's invest in this education." You know, I would be able to get my GED. I went on to get an associate of arts and associates in general education. Got a bachelor's degree from Roosevelt University. When it came to our institutions, where we were. And I, I graduated with honors, 4.0 GPA, was inducted into the Franklin Honor Society. I had all these wonderful things that were building up a sense of hope and a sense of a future that could be meaningful post-release, whereas these individuals were still there languishing alongside me. 
And so, yeah. And why? So, What's the difference? Why did you? <clears throat> why did you get these opportunities? I mean, because I had less time. Uh-huh. It was simply because of that. That whenever when it, I, I had an opportunity to work at as an academic office clerk at Galesburg Correctional Center, I, I worked at a desk right across from where the counselor sat, and the principal or the administrator was just like five feet away from me. And a part of their assessments for for folks who had got on waiting lists was to go straight to their their out dates. Mm. Like that was the first the first thing that they wanted to know. Really? Yeah, sadly. So um, some of the some folks the the the, the future is thrown away, and you yeah. were fortunate in that you yeah had some opportunities. We had Pell Grant opportunities that okay. we were able to you know invest our education. Um, but another thing too is because if you're giving a lot of time and you're in a max security prison, it's hard to work your way into a medium security prison because you're considered an escape risk. Right. So you can be a stellar in terms of behavior. You can you can have no infractions. You could be in an honor dorm of a facility, but because your time saying says that you're serving life without parole, you're not able to go into a medium security prison because you're considered an escape risk, a flight risk, regardless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so how old were you when you got out? Twenty six years old. Twenty six. Yeah, and did you go directly to work with a group like I can, or what? What? No. I how mean, did that evolve? Interesting for me when I came out of prison, I was twenty six, going on twenty seven, October two thousand two. Um, I wasn't connected with any organizations at all when I came out. Um, I came out with my certificates in hand, uh, went to what I thought would be a halfway house, and discovered it was a, it was a homeless shelter. Mm. I was at the Lakeview Shelter by Belmont uh, and Clark. I think that's the intersection there, right next to the police station. Mm. Interestingly, I had to go to the police station to call my PO to notify him that I arrived and interestingly, when I walked up to the steps of what I thought was a halfway house, there was a long line of folks standing outside. And um, I didn't want to make any assumptions, but I can I had a strong sense that many of them were homeless. And I'm like, maybe I'm at the wrong place. Maybe mm. there's another maybe there's another part of this facility that's that's the that's a halfway house, the transitional living space that I'll be able to, you know, take advantage of, you know, coming out. And when I got to when I finally made my way up to the the, the person at the desk. Um, I, I explained to them who I was, you know, the address that, that was given to me. I confirmed that. Um, I explained I had to, that I had to call my PO, and I did that. And I was just pretty much waiting to hear from them what I had to do next. And, they, and the gentleman at the desk said, well, make sure you go and grab a blue mat because they're running out. Mm. And I was like, and I looked over to the side, and there was a, a stack of blue mats with no sheets, no covers, just literally like a gym mat almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I looked to the other side of the room and I realized that people were situating those mats on the floor. And I said, I said, can I ask you a question? He's like, I said, this may sound strange, but is this a homeless shelter? And he's like, yeah, this is a homeless shelter. Mm. He said, it's temporary. You know, you, you come in at seven in the morning, you have to be in by seven. Good thing you got here on time. Mm. I would have not been able to let you in. Mm. And so right there, that was my instant orientation to, to freedom. You know, I often say that my first night out was worse than my last night in mm. um, because I found myself there in a homeless shelter sleeping alongside strangers within arm's reach, yeah. clenching my degrees and other important papers and not having a sense of my future. So in a sense, you had some yeah. good opportunities inside in yeah. a way. A lot of people don't. Yeah. Um, but then you got out without a lot of support. I mean, they said, go to this address. Yeah. 
Did they give you a check? Did they give you fifty bucks? 50 yeah, fifty dollars. Yeah, and a pair of clothes, a suit of clothes. Yeah, I, I had a well because of my previous clothes at the age of thirteen were no longer. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they got rid of that a long time ago. Um, I, I wore some state clothes out. Um, if I remember correctly, I had some khakis. I had a pair of boots. My state coat. Yeah, it was. Did you have an ID? I didn't have an ID. That's not crazy. yet. Not yet. I had I had my pro papers, and they told me this can be used as an ID, temporarily. Yeah, um, yeah. Nameless, faceless. I had no place out here. I'm, my mother and my family was still in the back of the yards where I grew up, and I decided that I wanted to go to a halfway house because I didn't want to go back to my neighborhood and be faced with old enemies, to be faced with the same ailments and challenges that existed in my home. My mother was still contained with schizophrenia. My stepfather, though he was abusing alcohol early on, he had stopped. He was suffering from the the, the, the ramifications of that. Right. You know, he had lost his leg, was amputated, right. was, you know, diabetic, um, was going through a lot of things. And, you know, I forgave him, but I just couldn't be in that space. Yeah, I, I feel like I need to start, a fresh new start, you know. But it's it's interesting to me because we've gone through this in our own family recently. Yeah. How little support you get getting out. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's like flinging you right back into a situation where yeah. going to the street makes a certain amount of sense. I mean... How am I going to get money? How am I going to get That's right. That's situated? Right. You know? Yeah, it's crazy. <clears throat> you know, I think what worked for me is strange. I used to say it inside. I always say, I'd rather be broke, starving, and homeless than to ever go back to prison. And, like, that's what I told myself. When I get out, I'm not coming back, no matter okay. what. Because I saw people come and go, and I'm like, are you serious? Why, why did people come you know? and go so often? Oftentimes, because of the most minor infractions with yeah. their parole, you know, they didn't notify of a change of address, or they right. they they failed the marijuana screening, or right. some something that could have been avoided. But oftentimes, you come out, and I and I understood while sitting there in a homeless shelter, I understood how how challenging it was to get to that phone. Right. I understood how tempting it was just to smoke some fucking weed and just yeah. chill because exactly. I'm going crazy here and I don't right. know what to do with my life. Right. You right. know, and sorry for that profanity, but like I can relate to how so many of the people who came out made these decisions. And though they did not have ill intent, this is how they coped. And sadly, that was often met with punishment, you know. So what was your first job? My first out? job? So it's, Well, my first job were voluntary. Well, again, I can't call them jobs, right? So um, again, I came out with my degrees. I had this Pollyanna perspective on life. I thought I would come out. And though the homeless shelter was like really shattering in a way, um, I just... Woke up the next morning and said, you know what? This is my life. I'm going to I'm gonna do what I set out to do. I started searching for jobs. I started going to businesses, stores. I was desperate. Um, I was turned down because of my background. I was convicted of murder. You know, I couldn't, I could not explain away the fact that I was a child because it showed up on my adult screen right. whenever they did a background check, whenever they did the, uh, the fingerprint analysis, when they did the, the statewide and then the national, I came up as a convicted murderer. And so that, that made it hard to find a job. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to at least, if I can't get a job doing what I want to do, I'm a volunteer doing what I, what I want to do. And so I ended up uh, connecting with the YMCA at the Londo location on north side of Chicago. I met a gentleman by the name of Kenny Ruiz, who was running this Christian fellowship and this YMCA program for kids. And I saw outside of his office, there was a heavy bag and some boxing supplies. And I love boxing. Like that was another passion that I had inside. And I said, I said, look, I can teach kids how to box. Mm. I, I, I want to do that. I, wa I want to create, I, I want to work with kids. I want to share my story. I want to be involved. I want to do something positive. And I feel like that would be a great way to distract myself from a sense of meaninglessness that I was feeling. 
I want to do something meaningful. Um, and that was my mission, my mission coming out. Okay. And so I volunteered doing that for, for like, I think two or three months. And while doing that, a gentleman by the name of uh, Tolliver, he approached me and said, are you still, are you still looking for a job? I'm like, yeah. I said, you know about any leads? By then, I'm like barely surviving with transportation money. I had to ask Kenny and the YMCA for bus passes to make it there to volunteer. Right. You know, so like I was really like counting on these bus passes to get to and from a job interview. And then I would get a little money for my stepfather and my mom. I didn't, I also had a link card, which gave me $145 a month. And that was because I was coming out of prison. Like that was the benefit that I was able to take advantage of. But as you can imagine, like those things only went so far, you know, and when it got desperate, I would trade my link um, money. Like I, I would shop for someone and I would get cash in return. Then I found this cool convenience store on the, on the West side of Chicago that if I went there and like with my link card, They'll give me 75 for 100, you know? But that, to me, was just a matter of survival. I mean, I could have went back to the neighborhood, could have got caught up in that nonsense and tried to pursue quick, fast money, but I was living my life very humbly and just trying to have meaning. And um, and interestingly, you know, that when he asked me if I had a, uh, had a job at the time, I told him no. And he said, well, I know someone who's hiring right now at Starbucks and not far from you. So I'm 47th in Cicero. All you got to do is take the 51st bus to 47, 47 straight down. I'm like, damn, there's two passes. And I'm like, I have to be strategic with my bus passes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to waste bus passes on, a, on something that's not going to amount to anything. <clears throat> so I said, you know what? Maybe there's not, maybe there's a shot here. I don't know. I mean, Starbucks was not in my neighborhood. And I always felt like that was another world. You know, lattes and yeah. like that's for another world. And when I arrived there, I remember sitting there in the lobby waiting. I saw others being interviewed. And then a woman walked up, introduced herself as Monica Perez, sat down with me, started to describe the position to me and asked me if I like coffee. I lied. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I like coffee. I didn't like coffee. Um, but it was interesting because there was a certain point where it felt too promising. And I got uncomfortable with that. And the reason why is because I felt that before. Yeah. And I was turned down days later. Yeah. And I said, Monica, I have to tell you something. And I want to just be open and honest with you. I'm just months out of prison. I never had a job. I'm exploring what it means to live as an adult in free society as we speak. You know, I have very few bus passes and I'm, I, I came here with a hope, but I don't know if you all hire people who have criminal convictions. And then as, as I'm talking with her and I'm sharing what I'm going, what, what, my, what my life was and where it was, she stopped me. She said, look, Xavier, I'm not going to judge you based upon what you did in the past. I'm going to judge you based upon who you are today and what you aspire to become. Holy cow. Yeah, and I just That's started, a special person. I was fucking crying. Yeah, I was bad, man. Yeah. But I, I mean, was, is, yeah. That true, is that policy for Starbucks? It wasn't. It, well, interestingly, it was an individual store manager who was not held back by any store, any store policy. I see. And so she had a discretion to decide whether or not to give me an opportunity, and she took that risk. And wow. I wouldn't call it a risk, but, you know, for all she knew. Well, from her point of view, yeah, sure. Yeah, and I just think she saw something in me and was able to see my humanity. Did it not, did not allow that that... 13-year-old decision uh, to, to shadow my life. Uh, In a way, forever. though, being frank about it paid off for you, right? I mean, yeah. but, but in terms of policy or even advice, yeah. do you think that corporations and, and companies and businesses should do away with the box, checking oh, absolutely. the box? You think that should be I mean, eliminated? Well, it's, it's an interesting question, right? Like, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with being asked a question about having had, um, you know, a previous arrest for criminal conviction. Um, I think, I think you know, some companies have to do that, 
like for example, if you want to work for the government and you're you in the position you know, entails being entrusted with, you know, you know, unimaginable amounts of money, whatever. You know, like like I can imagine where there are circumstances where, you know, you you may want to add you may you may want to know if someone has a previous history. But the positions that I was that I was applying for early on, especially, for example, you know, working as a youth counselor, working as a mentor, like I'm literally someone who lived that life. I'm someone who has now a degree from, from, from inside nonetheless, but still like this is my passion. And I was being turned down from these opportunities because yeah. of my my past. But yet my past is what made me uniquely capable of being a mentor, a mentor. You know, yeah. being a justice advocate. Uh, it's funny. I mean, I, I, you know, it's funny because this question of what's legitimate to ask about somebody's yeah. past. You know, I always think, I often think, you were talking earlier yeah. about second chance, not having a first chance. Yeah. R- Ronaldo Hudson spoke about that. But I yeah. think people who have privileges, children who have parents who have money, yeah. white people, um, mm. suburban people, they don't just get a first and second chance. That's they right. get a tenth chance. Yeah, yeah, they can yeah. mess up. They no, can do right. all that's the juvenile right. things that juveniles yeah. do. All mm-hmm. the adolescent stupidity. And yeah. it's called adolescent goofiness. It's that's not right. called that's right. a crime. So in a way, yeah. I, I'm, I guess in a way, I'm pushing and saying, maybe there is no legitimate reason to ask about your past. Maybe what we should say is... Maybe. Or, or, or in your case, yeah. see what I think is really impressive about you talking to this uh, Miss Perez, yeah. is is that you brought it up and yeah. you were frank. And in a certain way, how yeah. one talks about their past <clears throat> and thinks right. about their past, what they've wrestled with may be more important That's than checking right. some box or or noting some, you know, some official record. Yeah. I don't no, know. It's interesting because, like, I mean, people, like, the whole question around, you know, whether or not the question should arrive I think for me is at what point does that arrive, right? Like, for example, if I go apply for a job and and at the end of that conversation, the store supervisor is like, "You're you're the one for this position. I want to give you an opportunity. You know, this is you know here is what the position entails." And I think that, for example, there are some companies that try to soften the blow of that question by saying, "Now that we're here, mm. you know, is there you know." Have you ever had a conviction within, let's say, the past five years or the past seven years? And then you can always truthfully answer and say no, mm-hmm. right? Like you can really and truthfully say no because my offense happened like 13, 14, 15 years ago. And I, I think, you know, I think what's most important and, and maybe my experience is unique too because I'm coming at it from the perspective of someone who, despite sharing that, was given an opportunity. I know yeah. that doesn't happen always. Doesn't always yeah. happen. I think it doesn't always happen. Happens. In fact, in fact, I experienced before that um, countless times where they told me I was rejected because of it. So the question of like when does that, when if, if ever that should be um, asked, um, I think it depends on the company. It depends on the position. It depends on the person. What their level of comfortability is. I like to lead with my story. That's the difference perhaps too. Like I, I lead with my story in a way that, you know, um, I'm very transparent, very vulnerable. Um, and, and, and interestingly, in the space of criminal justice reform, in the space of youth, youth, youth sentencing reform, um, leading with that has actually manifested in pathways of success of reforms for folks to come out, you know, being able to share there, for example, in a committee hearing about my challenging past, what I went through, and yes, the dumb mistakes that I made, 
but the undeniable and uh, the, the reality of my positive change as I stand here in front of you in a suit with a college degree as a father, ha having been out for 20 years now, like what's undeniable about me today is that the 13 year old kid is long gone. Mm. And I think that me having the, the grace and ability to share in a way that uh, amounts to something meaningful and positive for others, it perhaps gives me a different lens towards that question. Yeah, yeah. I think that's important, but I also yeah. think I, I'm thinking in two ways. One, I'm thinking yeah. in terms of policy and I'm yeah. thinking in terms of other folks who don't have your yeah. drive, don't have your focus, um, yeah. don't have, you know, meeting Miss Perez at the Starbucks. No doubt. You know, yeah. you know yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about them too. And what is a rational, reasonable way to treat kids? So That's I guess right. that question right. leads me to say, so you went from Starbucks, somehow you got involved yeah. in the criminal legal reform world. Yeah. How did that happen? And, and bring us up to date well, with ICANN and so, so on. So I ended up, I ended up going, um, I joined uh, Starbucks in 2003, um, worked there for a year and a half. And while working there, I went back to school. And you wish you'd bought stock in Starbucks. Oh, then, I swear. Because we'd all be rich. <laughs> yeah, I swear. I swear. And it's interesting because like back then you had that option and you were, and they, and they told you that you're a partner. You're not a, you're not an employee, you're a partner. Right. <laughs> and so, uh, but yeah, I mean, having that job, what was great about it is I had flexibility with my schedule. So, you know, they were very intentional in, in, in being the sort of landing strip or a jumping point for people's careers. In other words, we know you're not here forever. We know you don't want to aspire to be a barista forever. Like, you know, like, you know, this is temporary. We want to, you know, give you this job and you help create an atmosphere that just fosters the, the beauty of the human spirit. You know, like create community here. In the meantime, we're going to support you for your in your future. And so I ended up going back to school. But, but what yeah. was it like getting that first paycheck? Oh, my God. Yeah, it was transformative. And, and, yeah. and was, it, was it a lot yeah. of money? Well, it seemed it was, like a lot, maybe. Well, it seemed like a lot. It was like, I think, 400 something dollars. Holy crap. Yeah, yeah. That, that is a lot. <laughs> yeah. When you're when you're well, at the time now, I'm, I'm not I'm the longer at the homeless shelter. I gave up. I gave up. I tapped out. I, yeah. I moved back in with my mom and my stepfather and my sister. Yeah. yeah. We're back there. Like they didn't have a room for me. I'm, I'm literally sleeping in the dining room. I mean, it wasn't it was it wasn't much of a dining room. It was a, the, the middle room of the home. I put a curtain to cover the kitchen, a curtain to cover the living room. I had a small mattress in the corner there with a small dresser. Like I'm that I'm back there. And while living there, I, what was conflicting for me is seeing that my my home life or that of my family's life didn't change much right in terms of like even even just visibly like seeing my mother with old dilapidated furniture a broken down television uh, a tube television for that matter <laughs> yeah and 2002 and you know like i just felt really motivated with my first check to just buy something for the home nice. like i just wanted my mom to finally have things she can be proud of. And I remember the first thing I did was go, I went and I financed a furniture check. So I nice, mean, a man. furniture set. Yeah. And I brought my check to, it was Balaban Furniture on 47th and National. And I walked in with my with my first pay, uh, pay stub. Um, I think I had like a hundred and something bucks that I wanted to put down on it. But I was trying to finance. I didn't, I also was trying to establish some credit. 
and they and they I think probably hit me for like twenty five percent interest for all I know. It didn't matter to me. I, I just wanted to be able to give my mom a furniture set, and so you that's know, what I did. And, with the and, and you're a better yeah. you're a better person than I am because <laughs> where my mind went was yeah. I'm gonna wait till Starbucks closes and then steal two of those chairs. There you go. You know, yeah, <laughs> figure are, out what to do here. Those are yeah. pretty nice. Anyway, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that was my my first check, and then uh, yeah, I mean. So while working at Starbucks, I'm going part-time at Roosevelt University. Cool. Yeah. And I'm going towards a master's degree. I want to be a licensed professional counselor. Like that was my goal going in. They accepted me back in because I had a bachelor's degree from a side institution with, with the same university. And Roosevelt didn't care about your record. No, not okay. at all. Not at all. I mean, I feel like they were just the right organization. Okay. I mean, the right university for me because okay. the moment I stepped in, like even while I stepped in that first class um, alongside other, you know, beginning graduates. Like I had an opportunity to introduce myself and I just, again, I didn't hold back. I was honest about my past, how I arrived there. Cause that was the question. How did you arrive here? Mm. A lot of them said, well, I, you know, I went and got this degree and I decided I want to pursue another, yeah. you know, line of work. And another one said, well, I'm a teacher. And, but I also, you know, I want to learn more about counseling and apply those techniques in my class. And like, they all had a different yeah. reason. I'm like, damn, I have nothing to share. That's yeah, like yeah. that. And I just stood up and I remember sharing in front of the whole class. I was like, I'm Xavier McElrath Bay. Um, I got out of prison months ago. Um, I'm working part time, and I want to become a licensed professional counselor, and that's why I'm here. And and it was and I and, and as quickly as I stood up, I sat down. Right. And interestingly, the whole place just started clapping. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Right. So Roosevelt just told me in the door, like, "We love you. We're right. here for you. We got you. Don't beautiful. worry." You know. Beautiful. So, how do you get those chances for other people who, again, don't have your drive, your yeah. personality, your yeah? Your I mean, the well, let me just say this. Many folks that I met inside, again, are resilient. They have so much. If I can tell you, just like, you know, oftentimes you see these prison documentaries where people are sitting at at, the, at their tables playing cards or just congregating on the yard. And, you know, from, from the 30-foot or 100-foot distance view, like, you can assume all the things in the world. All the stereotypes. You can assume that they're, you know, you know, collaborating on something negative or right. you know, coming up with some conspiracy to commit another crime or harm right. someone or extort right. someone. Right. Oftentimes, we were on those yards talking about philosophy, religion. Really? You know, we were talking about life. Say more. You know? And we were literally just trying to, like, discover meaning in a world that was really stripped of hope and where an alien force just governed every step of the day and did not see us for the human beings that we were. Yeah. And we had to find that in each other. And so oftentimes we'll debate about religion. Oftentimes we'll go back to the pre-Socratic philosophers and like, we would just go into these long mental journeys, share books and, you know, but also at times cry together, you know, mm. and that didn't happen oftentimes in, in larger groups. But like if you had a study that you really was really cool with and understood you and was, you know, when I was in a juvenile temperature center, I met an individual named Roosevelt Gamaldo. He was faced with murder. He had 15 years well, 30 on, on, he had to do 15. We ended up in IYC Joliet together, Max Security Prison for Kids. Don't you know, every single night before we went to sleep, we read Psalms 51. Wow. Every single night. Wow. And we were some little gang-banging-ass kids. Yeah, yeah. Causing riots, fights, doing yeah. all this stupid stuff. But when we walked, when we stepped into our cell, we literally, every night, we prayed Psalms 51. Right. So th I think that... What I'm, what I'm getting at here is that I know the beautiful gift uh, that many people have inside, and that is the ability to be really in tune with who you are, 
both mentally, emotionally, spiritually. You know, um, I think that being in prison is this very spiritual thing. Um, it's where you see good and evil so blatantly and clear and you have options. And, you know, oftentimes when you're going young and you're, you know, you're tied to a gang, those options can be limited, very limiting. Mm -hmm. And I learned that right away. At the moment I stepped into the adult criminal system at, at the age of 17, when they woke me up on my birthday and sent me to Cook County jail for my first hearing, a transfer hearing, whether or not I'd be kept to the juvenile or the adult system, um, the judge continued it and kept me in Cook County yeah. and sent me to division one H3. And when we arrived there, there was no space for us. So we slept in a day room and I'll never forget laying there on the ground next to the, 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 the table closest to the, to the bubble or, or the doorway where the officers would come in. And I remember looking over to the side and seeing blood splats along the wall. And that was my first few hours in, inside the Cook County jail there in one of the longest standing worst uh, parts of the institution. Right, right. And so for me growing up and seeing those things and, and, you know, having to remain deeply connected and aligned with my gang um, because, you know, I was a young vulnerable kid in this adult criminal justice system. Um, I learned right away that they oftentimes didn't have my best interests. I was fighting all the time. Mm. I was in a hole all the time. And that um, my next court hearing came up, they said, you're fit for the adult system. They sent me to Jolliet Correctional Center. Within a matter of weeks, I, I put a security line on the officer being aligned to my, in allegiance to my gang was securing the, the, the member, or the leader who, who, of our gang. Uh, I put a security line on the officers. They put me in over six months, came out of that. And soon after that, within a matter of like two or three months, was involved in a riot, assaulted the officer at Jolliet, was sent to Pontiac Correctional Center. Um, but all these things were happening, honestly, and I felt even at that time, though I was the one swinging, it, that was all out of my control. I didn't have the freedom, uh, even within there, yeah. within those, within the system to decide and pick and choose my battles. I had to do what the gang said I had to do. But you're doing these things and you're not getting a good time day for a, a you know. I'm a, losing time. You're losing time. You're right? absolutely right. Yeah, That's so, exactly what so happened. You must yeah. have been, your your yeah. calculations must have been <clears throat> driving you crazy. Because every, well, good point. By the time I was 18, I already lost a year and a half. There you go. So I was supposed to be able to count that towards a day-for-day -day provision. I was actually going backwards now. And that was part of my reasoning why I left it alone. When I was in Pontiac Correctional Center, I was 300 feet away from death row. I was there in a hole for a year behind a steel door. Um, and I had a lot of time to think about my life and really look in the mirror, a very dingy, ugly mirror. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and just, I had to face myself. And I just knew that if I kept living that life, I was never going to be able to live a normal life. And yeah. I'll perhaps end up on death row. And so I left, I left the hole with a desire to lead the gang, and I did that. And and was that difficult? Was that hard? Very difficult. Yeah. Yeah. And did you get? Did did they try to enforce you back? <clears throat> well, interestingly, I wrote a letter and I sent it to population. I never forget. Uh, one of the guys, Mo, he worked the gallery. He was a part of the gang that I was in. He was an older member. He knew my uncle, and also you know from years back, who was now in Menard Correctional Center. I was in, we were in Pontiac at the time, and I remember Mo, you know, telling me like, "Are you sure you want to do that?" Are you sure you want to leave the, the nation? Because, you know, we often say, you know, never turn your back on the nation. Never. I was a Lion King at the time. And in fact, grew up, you know, as a Lion King. And so that's all I knew. And um, when I told them I don't want to be a part of the gang anymore, I'm inside the hole. He'd be mighty courageous to do that right behind a steel door. I don't want to be a part of the gang anymore. <laughs> you know, like no one can touch me while I'm there. But I have to step out of there someday. And um, that happened a year later when I came out the hole. 
Um, I was sent to the West House. And when I got to the West House, I ended up at the bottom gallery. The officer said, what gang are you in? And I didn't, I didn't want to get into the politicking or explaining my situation. I said, I'm a Lang King. And he yelled up to the top gallery and he whistled. And he, and he got one of the guys' attention. He said, man, one of your guys are down here. So one of, the, one of my fellow Lang King members came running down the gallery and, and, and took me upstairs and gave me a cell. Mm -hmm. And the officer didn't give me a cell. Right. My gang gave me a cell. Damn. And the furthest far-reaching part of the gallery, away from the gun tower, though visible to the catwalk, I was far from secure. And so, as you can imagine, I was scared to death. Um, but the one thing that I had um, was, well, two things. One was prayer. I mean, like, months and months of prayer. <laughs> Memorying Bible verses, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every time that shall rise up against you uh, shall be condemned. Like, literally, I was carrying these verses in my heart coming into the West House, thinking I might die. But I, but if, if the prayer is not going to help me, well, this photo album that I tore in pieces and, and layered and tied with the thick lining of my sheet to loop around the back of my neck and tie behind my back, you know, and hide beneath my hoodie and my state jacket, if the prayer doesn't help me, if they do try to kill me, I can at least protect my, protect my vital organs. And right. that's what I tried to do. Gotcha. And uh, when I went to the West House, they ran <clears throat> yard an hour later, got to the yard, and when I got to the yard... Um, they basically walked me to the far side of the yard and created a circle and started to interrogate my, my decision. And I just told them, I love you guys. Um, I'm, I'm not turning my back on the nation. I'll always be here for you all. And I'm talking, I'm 18 years old. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm talking as if they need me, but they don't need me. Yeah, yeah. You know, I need them. I'm in the worst, one of the worst prisons in the state. Yeah. And, um, perhaps nonsensical what they were hearing, but I meant it. Like, I just knew that I didn't want to live that life anymore. And... When I told him I don't want to be a part of it anymore, one of the older guys walked up and put his arm on my shoulder and he told everybody to disperse. And so right then and there, I knew he was the, the chief. He was leading, if not the cell house, the prison. And uh, he walked me to the side and he said, look, man, he said, look, I'm only going to ask you to do three things for me. I'm like, what's that? He said, number one, take your ass to school to edu and educate yourself. Number two, don't ever represent this gang ever again. And number three, don't get caught up in no nonsense because we don't have to come and save you. Like, literally, he gave me the green ticket to right. just go about living my life in prison. And though I was in one of the most secure and most violent prisons in the state, and it was the wintertime, like, literally, cold as hell, I, in the most surreal, crazy way, I felt like the fucking sun was shining down on me, and I was warm and safe. That is like, it was else. weird. Those three demands weird. were pretty good. I mean, pretty... Yeah, yeah. You could live that. with those. And, and you know what he told me? And after he said that, and I understood why he said that, he said because those were decisions that he, he wished he had made when he was younger. Damn. <clears throat> he went you to know, the system young. I'm hearing a lot of luck in no. this story, man. You know, I mean, you made yeah. some, you made a lot of choices. Yeah. You had a lot of determination. Yeah. And you also, you know, got Very the green fortunate. card uh, here and there. You know? Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. But I, I want to go back to Starbucks to yeah. criminal justice reform. Yeah. Uh, where do you, how do you, so you go back to school at Roosevelt. I go to Roosevelt University. And, and how do you get involved with groups like at Northwestern? How does that happen? Well, I ended up working in gang intervention, violence prevention, was at C-SPARD and Catholic Charities, and then I went to Alternatives. Uh, alternatives, not far. Well, well, it's definitely along the lake, but it's further north. Um, and they basically... I was working, you know, with the school and community assistance, helping kids who were locked out, runaways, who were much like me, you know, who were just living in the streets and were trying to have some stability, uh, helped them find alternative living arrangements because their parents at home weren't 
there it was a very volatile situation for oftentimes for many of them. And so while doing that, I heard about a position at Northwestern. And it, and it made sense, honestly, between 2004 and 2009, it was, it was just a lot of gang intervention, violence prevention. It was draining. Emotionally, it was draining. And I saw this position that would allow me to be a part of a study to go about as, as a clinical interviewer, to go into all parts of the city. And I liked that idea. I wanted to be able to explore different parts of the city, but most importantly, meet people who were just like me, yeah. who grew up in the system, who were out, yeah. recreating their lives. Uh, and many of them, you know, um, I saw some very challenging stuff. Yeah. You know, I saw some of the places where I met them were like at McDonald's because they didn't have a residence at all. One time I interviewed a guy in a broken down dilapidated van. It was there in the parking lot on the west side of Chicago. Mm. One time I walked into an interview and the mother showed me to the living room and her son was there laying on the couch with multiple bullet wounds, has fresh out the hospital mm. and wasn't able to, to, to get out of that couch. You know, so like I've seen so much, but it was also times when I saw a lot of hope. I saw some of the subjects in the study were thriving, had businesses, had homes of their own. Mm. You know, we're living in beautiful suburbs, serene communities, no mm -hmm. violence, no graffiti. Like, and interestingly, and it may sound weird, a lot of them were white. Mm. And I was Why like, does Holy that sound cow. weird? I mean, well, I mean, uh, uh, definitely not weird in hindsight. But for me, that back then, having, you know, being in not, I was not involved in the advocacy space at the time. I was right. just more or less like, just doing what I, what I enjoyed doing. And, but what stood out to me was that the, the outcomes very, did differ. You know, um, when they came you know, to demographics and you know, who you right. who you were, where you grew up, you know, what support systems you had, and race was a factor. You know, you said earlier you, yeah. uh, we used to call folks subjects. What do you now call them? Well, I mean, I never even when I was working the job, when I was in the meeting, I would, a staff meeting, I would talk about my subjects. But they are my guys. <laughs> like, I see. You know, they are my friends. It's you funny because the reason yeah. I ask is because yeah, you yeah. know, in the in the interviewing work that I do or that I teach. Yeah, yeah. We we call people narrators. It's their story. I like that. Yeah, I like say, that. You know, yeah, yeah. I, I talked to a narrator today yeah. and, and she was narrating her story. That's different than saying subject a or subject. object that's of my right, study. That's right, that's yeah. right. Because it feels so impersonal. Like yeah, it feels it like does. they're not a human being. They're yeah. like uh, a part of or cog in the wheel. You're yeah, just yeah, observing yeah. it. You know, like yeah. yeah. What year did I can get founded in two thousand and fourteen. And tell us about that. How did that so, happen? Uh, so after I met Shoba, uh, which I think was in 2013, um, Shoba uh, told me about the campaign. And I think weeks later, I got a call from her saying, hey, you want to go to Hollywood? I'm like, Hollywood? Like, like for what? She's like, to record a PSA. Uh, there's a film coming out uh, by... Um, by The Rock, and it's called Snitch. And I'm like, well, I don't want nothing to do with a film yeah. called Snitch. Right. She's like, no, 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 it's, 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 you're not gonna have nothing to do with the film at all. It's just a PSA about extreme sentences. And you know, remember I told you about the campaign. Well, the the twist on this PSA is gonna be about youth. I'm like, oh, cool. So I agreed to it. I ended up flying out to um, California, did the PSA, um, and it was shared widely. Um, amongst the, the the coalition of the campaign for the fair sensing of youth. And what, what did you say in the PSA? What I just was, shared. It was, it was like a three minute clip. I just so, shared about my life, you know, growing up, um, the fact that I had changed. I expressed my remorse. Towards, and what was the pitch? The pitch was kids um, should not be getting extreme sentences. Absolutely. Was that the pitch? Absolutely. Yes. That you know. That, in other words, give us a chance. You know, mm -hmm. see that I'm not the exception to the rule. That all kids deserve an opportunity for change. You okay. know, and and it was you know. For me, you know, having shared my story in that way and to see the outpouring of, of 
appreciation, love, and like it just really woke me up to say, hold on, like there's a place for my story in this work, perhaps, you know. Mm. Tell me what your work uh, is today mm -hmm. with ICANN and the yeah. Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth are merged. Are they the same organization? Yeah. So I was invited in 2013 to the first uh, annual, well, my first annual convening in Washington, D.C. When I arrived there, um, I found myself in a small conference room with seven individuals who were just like me from all across the country. We're all formerly incarcerated. Some went in as young as 13, 14, like myself. Some have went in at age 18. So it was really um, um, the, 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 the dominant experience of all of us that we were given extreme sentences in our teens. And um, the questions that we were, you know, that we had that uh, wrestle with in that room was, A, you know, how can we contribute in, you know, and be a support to the movement to end life without pro for kids? Um, and B, how do we create a national network of individuals just like us, where we're not, just, not, not only are we advancing each prong of the work, but we're also building a community that, that brings about healing and a sense of common purpose and identity. And um, we walked out of that room more than anything, just excited to see each other across that space and to accompany each other um, at, at the, in the following experiences of healing and hope and all the wonderful um, um, centerpiece experiences that the campaign will afford to us there in D.C. every year. Um, but that common, the, the camaraderie that we created was was very helpful because we ended up we found ourselves making calls and you know strategizing around you know what how do we go about you know building out you know for example uh, a truth a truth telling a storytelling campaign how do we go about supporting legislation um, you know and then when that when that happened we didn't have that name I can and so while Jody is creating the space where we can co create with one another. I'm, I'm having conversations with Jody on the side and we're discussing this national network. Mm. And um, about a year later, after we've created the name of ICANN, after we've created the mission and vision, after we've identified um, uh, points of advocacy, whether it's educating lawmakers, judges, and others, like we had outlined what the work would look like, we still had very few members. And I didn't have the time um, early on to be able to dedicate to recruiting members and particularly in priority states where we we're trying to advance reforms. But then there was an opportunity that happened in 2013, and that is that my job was coming to a close at Northwestern. And I shared about that on social media. This is simple, you know, uh, it's been great being here at Northwestern, but things will be coming to a close soon. I wonder what will the future, what the future will entail. And Jody reached out the same day and said, Xavier, you ever thought about working for the campaign? And I was like, no. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, as much as I enjoy being a volunteer, as much as I enjoy co-creating and envisioning this national network, I always looked at their work as like highly technical. It requires a certain degree or particularly a law degree because, you know, you're changing laws. Mm -hmm. right? And I don't know a thing about that. Mm -hmm. And she's like, no, Xavier, like, you know, I, I want you to know that I, you know, I believe you can you can make a difference in this space, you know, like you, you know, your story and not to mention you bring something, you know, you, 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 she started pulling out, pulling out all the things that she felt would be helpful for me to be a part of the campaign. And I, I mean, it didn't take much convincing. I knew the pay was much better, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, um, but she said, she said yeah. she thought you could make a difference in that space. Yeah. And did yeah. you? Well, interestingly, when I came on board, I uh, often, I was, I was the first and only formerly incarcerated individual on staff. You know, again, I'm standing in, in, in a space where everyone has a law degree or they graduated from some prestigious university and they're they're based in D.C. and it just steps away from the White House. So I'm very intimidated. 
And I remember um, just showing up there at the campaign as an employee for the first time alongside S.C. Mathis, who was doing the Soros Fellowship. Like, we were just so embraced. And so um, I remember having my ABC training. I sat in, in a room with with um, with James Dald, and I think Nicola was with us at the time. Mm. I'm trying to remember. Um, but I watched this video. Um, so, like, this is a bill. This is a bill. You know, mm. you know the, the, the cartoon? Uh, of the bill as it you know, moves forward in legislation. What is that? But it's also, this is a very funny video. It was a cartoon. So I was like, what are you trying to say? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? And um, long story short, I found myself slowly but surely getting a greater sense of what the work entailed. I, my first state that I visited was Nevada in 2015. Uh, me, James, uh, Mario Taylor, Sarah Cruzan, um, um, who else? I think Eric was also a part of that effort. Like a number of us who were formerly incarcerated ended up in, in Nevada, in a state far from home, and standing before legislators, sharing our stories, and asking and pleading with, with the, the legislature to give these individuals who were locked away and given life without parole a chance. And honestly, having that being my first experience, like I didn't understand the significance that we would be able to bring into that space. But interestingly and almost unanimously, they passed the, the bill to end yeah. life without parole. And to this day, folks are coming home as a result of that. And that's like so that's a great feeling. Yeah. 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 And and it didn't require me to have a law degree. <laughs> so that's I was like, great. that felt good too. So yeah. I just brought my heart into the room. And you know, oftentimes just tearfully just shared my experience and really just wanted to rise really right. How did that how did that lead to ICANN? Did that lead yeah. to ICANN? Well, particular? interestingly, the founding members, uh, some of them stuck around and, and as we created an ICANN criteria, um, it kind of like screened out some of our founding members. We had to be very strategic and specific about that. For example, what do you mean? Uh, the criteria is you have to have been convicted of a homicide related offense and or sentenced to life without parole when you were a child. Got it. So uh, some of our founding members who were 18 years old, and though they agreed with the criteria, because they saw the, the strategic purpose of it all, and they knew it was important, they, 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 they created criteria that removed themselves, but created wonderful promise for the movement, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and shifting gears just a bit, yeah. um, we saw each other in Montgomery, Alabama, yeah. at the inauguration of the... Peace and Justice Memorial. Yes, yes. And you were down there. There were a whole yeah. bunch of uh, prison abolitionists and uh, criminal legal reformers of all kinds. Yeah. And we had a big lunch together at one point. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you remember that. I um, believe so. I, yeah, I believe, and, and yeah. there was somebody there who had just gotten out and mm. had just joined up with you. And I don't remember his name. But I do remember that he okay. was um, feeling vulnerable. Mm. And I, I had a strong sense that part of what your work was, yeah. was was finding folks like him and helping him enter into yeah. uh, the free world, so, speak, so to speak. That's right. Um, in a way that was less traumatic than it might have been. Yeah. Do you remember that lunch? No, I mean, I don't remember who, who the individual you're talking yeah. about, but I can tell you that that's, all, that's, a, that's really a dominant theme amongst folks who are coming home. Yeah. You know, so um, going back to 2013, that initial meeting... 2014, upon joining the staff, ICANN was inaugurated. Since then, we we now have, I think, 200 plus members in over 32 states. And this membership has grown mostly because of the reform. So imagine, for example, you're serving time in Nevada. You're there serving life. 
you hear about you hear about this organization and this initiative arriving in your state who's advocating for you who's contacted your mother your grandfather or your uncle whoever is there in your life has contacted that person and said we're here and we're fighting on on your loved one's behalf um would you be willing to show up and testify in the committee hearing would you be willing to provide uh written testimony would you be willing to you know host events and come and be a part of our rallies whatever the case may be like those people who are inside it's like a light shining into their dark the darkness space that they're in yeah. and more often than not because they're juvenile lifers we they've already been receiving letters from us so they know the campaign for the fair sensing of youth had abolished life without pro in virginia west virginia just right. a couple years earlier if you're in nevada at the time 2015 right. you know that the, the bill in um hawaii <laughs> passed right you know that there are like nine other states that has passed legislation to abolish this, and now holy cow, they're here. Right. And so hmm. imagine right. you come yeah. out, you come out of prison, and you're like, there's so much love and appreciation for this entity with a human face that came and cheerfully fought for you and loved on you before they even saw you. Right. Imagine the loyalty and commitment they have. Right. I can members who more often than not, when they come out of prison, they're seeking to become a member of ICANN because they know that this is a force that helped create the liberation for their lives. And not to mention, they're also the ones who can help empower them to help free others who are similarly situated in other states. Right. And so the, the snowball effect of love and commitment and compassion and all the amazing uh, movement and momentum up until this very year, um, interestingly, has manifested in this beautiful community that is just fucking diehard for the movement, you know? So, so does that keep you yeah. going? I, I was thinking, as you talk about the yeah. work and the stories and so on, I was thinking about how vulnerable you must be to burning out sometimes. Yeah. And, and so yeah. the love partly comes from the, the, the guys getting out, but it, yeah. but where else do you find sustenance? Where do you, where do you yeah. find balance in your life? I mean, home, 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 home. home. Yeah. You and know, to, like, and say a word yeah. about that. Say a word about, yeah, I know, I haven't yeah. seen your daughter in, in a long time. Yeah. And the last time you saw her, she was, I think, five years old. And you it was story time with Bill. That's right. <laughs> so That's funny. right. She loved the book. And it's interesting because like, you know, now she's, you know, fast forward, she's 10 years old. Um, you know, Sophie's just really a great artist. I'm looking at crayons right now. Like that defines every waking moment. For Sophia, she's an artist. Well, and when you guys come over for dinner, oh we'll yeah, bring her back here oh absolutely, the oh, yeah, yeah. oh, she's gonna go wild with this view. First yeah. of all, yeah. she's gonna go wild yeah. with yeah. it. Yeah. She's gonna be drawing. I, I promise, she's gonna be great inspiration for right. her. Right. But yeah, I mean, home for me because I mean, I mean, constant reminder of what a kid's you know life should be like. I try to create that for Sophia, and most importantly, you know, being able to take my mind off the work and and for me to live out perhaps I don't know maybe vicariously like i'm a kid in that home sometimes you right. know i become a kid you know right. and i find myself doing silly dumb stuff and having enjoying the you know the the childhood i never had no um, it's one of the great things about parenting is getting yeah. to redo things uh, yeah but, yeah but a lot yeah, of people yeah. would say with the rough start that you had yeah that you might replicate that but you've interesting you've, yeah. you've forced in a certain way yeah. You've intentionally said, I'm going to do the opposite of what happened to me. You know, it's funny. I mean, I think that's what happens to a lot of people who grow up in very like volatile, toxic environments. Like, either you go all the way in one direction or the other, right? Like, And I think for me, I, very swiftly, I went in the wrong direction in my life. Right. 
I think, you know, being hit upside the head, going in the system and, and never having a sense of what it's like to be in, as an adult and free society and coming out and having that chance and working in the community and seeing all those challenges. Like for me, it's like, if there's nothing else I can do in this world, I want to be able to provide a normal life for my child. It's a beautiful you know, thing. Like, you, know, and like, I, you know, I think about, you know, it's a beautiful thing. And I yeah. think about our parenting, which, you know, Bernadine and I really, it was the, it was the high point of our lives yeah. raising these three young men. And, uh, but I remember whenever I would slip or make what I thought was a, parenting mistake yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think damn i I'm, i was given a second chance to yeah. to do Beautiful. life and, and i can't yeah. mess it up you know? that's right that's and right, that's it's, right. A, it's it's really a great honor yeah. and, a, and a great uh burden in a way well i mean you know it's interesting what will we'll, we'll beat against even your greatest attempts at being the best possible parent is people have different perspectives on what parenting should be sure like the first question that we were faced with early on when, when Sophie was born um, about the whole crying, right? right? The whole crying thing. And by the way, we're just in the, in, in the door. It was like Marcy, who's, you know, Sophie's mother, my wife. Um, oh, I got married, y'all. I told you that. You yeah, told us. I told you. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. good, good. Make sure you, uh, but when, when, when Sophie was born, they're like, well, you gotta let your child cry and they, they, let them, what do you call it? Self-soothe. I'm like, Hell no! I'm not gonna <laughs> let my child self-soothe and cry and lay there helplessly. No way! Like literally speaking, whenever Sophie cried, we picked her up. That was our policy. I don't care what's going on. The moment Sophie cries, we pick her up. And that meant in the middle of the night, me pacing up and down this creaky hallway, holding her with one arm, half asleep, but damn it, determined not to let her cry. Absolutely. And that's exactly what we did. And it's interesting because it paid off. Sophie is very confident. Sophie, I mean, talk about self-efficacy. Like she's just, she she just has this 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 temperament that says, you know, I can entertain myself. I can love myself. I I trust where I am. I trust you. Like like everything that I did not have growing up, and in terms of my personality and where where I navigated this world, I was often very impressionable. Yeah. I was a follower. I was yeah. scared half the time. Peer pressure was like God. You know, yeah. like so. Yeah. But Sophie, like, no, Sophie dresses how she wants, does everything how she wants. Like, she doesn't feel like, yeah, she even says sometimes jokingly, I don't like people. <laughs> but that's her way of saying, you know, I'm not living for others, you know? I love it, man. Yeah. Well, Xavier, I can't thank you enough for your time, for your thank work. You. Um, thank you. Thank thanks you so much. much. Thank you so much. Bill. All right. <laughs> we talked on and on, Xavier and I, and I asked him about the books he's reading or might recommend. He told me that in prison, the Bible sustained him and that he'd memorized parts of it. The other book that played a role for him while he was inside, and for others as well, was Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, and the echoing line, to live is to suffer, to survive is to find meaning for that suffering. You know, one of the features we foreground is our book of books. That is, books we're reading or books we ought to read to become more educated, more engaged, more tuned in to the struggles of people who are working toward justice and freedom. And I was thinking today we ought to talk about books that are either memoirs of prison or descriptions of prison life. And of course, I think of a couple of international examples, for example, Antonio Gramsci's Prison Diaries, which I read years ago and, and 
return to now and then, and it's a fantastic, important read. Or Jacobo Timmerman's Prisoner Without a Name, Cell Without a Number, and Nelson Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom. I haven't read those in years, but they're on my list nonetheless because they're so important. And then turning to the United States itself, there are some memoirs that are very, very meaningful. My Midnight Years, Surviving John Burge's Torture Ring and Death Row by Ronald Kitchen, The Great Solitary by Albert Woodfox, Stanley Tukey Williams's Blue Rage, Black Redemption, a memoir, and Centoya Brown, Long, Free Centoya, My Search for Redemption in the American Prison System, and another classic, Angela Davis's If They Come in the Morning, or Asada Shakur's Asada, an autobiography. Pick some of those up. They're pretty important books, and they'll round out your education about what's going on. I don't know if there are any things written for kids uh, about people in prison. You you have anything you've read about prison, a novel or a memoir? Um, in fifth grade, I was assigned to read a book called Dear Martin about a 18-year-old African-American kid um, who has a journal where he writes letters to Martin Luther King Jr. Um, that one isn't about prison, but the there's a sequel called Dear Justice, which is mm. the name of the kid, the protagonist in the first one. And that one is about, um, that one is about prison. It's, it is centered around a teenage boy named, uh, Quan, who was about my age when he, um, joined a gang and, uh, there was, um, a kind of interaction between some of his, his gang member fellow gang members and uh, some cops and one of the cops was shot and he got arrested for it even though um well I won't I won't <laughs> say anything don't, but don't spoil it yeah right. um he's arrested for it and so he starts writing letters to justice which is the protagonist of Dear Martin uh-huh. and um the idea of it was that in Dear Martin justice was you know he had a hard time a hard adolescence but he still had money and a chance because he ends up going to Yale and having a wildly successful and passionate life but Quan never had a chance he never had anything so he had to build something for himself and it ended up blowing up in his face it did, was a really amazing novel I really loved did it did you learn something about prison and life in prison absolutely a lot of the scenes are centered around his interviews with a therapist which are really amazing to uh, read about. I don't know if you've ever seen Miriam Kaba's books, which are pretty much brand new, and they're for younger kids than you. One is called Missing Daddy, about a kid uh, writing writing about I've his read dad. That. In, have you read it? I have. How did you have to read it? I read it in Mr. Rob's class. Ah, and so there's one called See You Soon, and that's about um, a mother going to prison. Mm-hmm. And these are both by the great Chicago organizer, Miriam Kaba. Okay, um, I, I just add one thing, and this might be of interest to you. I know you're doing a research project on the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. Have you seen the Stanley Nelson film, The Black Panther Party, Vanguard of the Revolution? I have not. I only just started researching. My, my um, sources are mostly books from the library, which mm. are pretty great, actually. Good. I, I really think Stanley Nelson's a filmmaker you should know, and he's made two documentaries that overlap a little bit. One is called um, 
the Black Panther Party vanguard of the revolution. The other is about the Attica prison uprising. And this is a film from 2021. And it's about the prison riots in the early 1970s. I think you would find it interesting. And a lot of those guys were Black Panthers. Two other films that come to mind. One is Liz Garbus and Jonathan Stack's documentary, The Farm, colon, Angola, USA, about the huge Louisiana prison plantation called Angola. And the other is Time, a 2020 film about Sybil Fox Richardson's fight for, for the release of her husband, Rob. So those are a couple things that would, I would add to the Book of Books. Those sound amazing. I'll yeah. definitely check them out. Let's check it out. Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can in the direction of our dreams. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to our friends at the Dazzling Podcast Ergo. And to my co-conspirator, Light Eilee, and to Jordan Allen for producing and engineering. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a gift to the free spirits. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.